Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the Christian channel that loves atheists. But we also love Christians who disagree with us about secondary doctrinal issues. Unlike what you'll hear some unbelievers and atheists say, um, Orthodox Christians are not confused about foundational issues of our faith. But when it comes to secondary doctrinal issues, there can be some back and forth, some disagreement. And before I got into apologetics specifically and really focused in on that, I was involved in debates, live public debates with Calvinists on issues related to Calvinism and non-Calvinist uh, Christian positions. And so for that reason, occasionally I'll be asked to talk about my thoughts on that. And so that's what you'll see in this video with Dr. Chris Featherstone, who is one of our professors at Trinity. Now, if you're someone who's interested in taking courses at Trinity, you can visit us at Trinity Sem. That's Trinity Sem.edu. And if you're a Calvinist and it bothers you that I'm saying some of the things I'm saying in this video, you should understand that I am a friendly um, non-Calvinist. And on top of that, we have several Calvinist professors. We use many Reformed textbooks or textbooks from a Reformed tradition at Trinity. Um, but we have our own personal views. And so here you'll hear Chris and I discuss some of those. Welcome if you're a Calvinist. You are my brother or sister in Christ. Welcome if you are an atheist. I want you to become my brother or sister in Christ. And with that, I hope you'll enjoy this discussion. Um, you know, there, there are certain people who, uh, <laughs> there are certain people that I, uh, just cringe listening to, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, uh, some, yeah. some very popular people you've, sure. uh, you, you, you and Jonathan have made some, some remarks about people. You actually made an apology video about one of them. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you we get a little rally right every now and then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because, uh, before you made the apology video, I was just kind of like eating it all up. Uh, I appreciate the, the, the nobility of, of the apology video, but, uh, I, you know, I, I think dissecting the, the errors of, of Calvinism, uh, was, a was a right angle and, you know, you, you do it a lot and, uh, I think it's necessary. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, the thing about it is um, with Jonathan and I, we have very different personalities. Yeah, uh, he, he's kind of the hard, rough, say it like it is. Yep. Uh, he's a straight shooter. Me. Yeah. And I'm more of that now. Calm down, Jonathan. Now, <laughs> now, you know, that, that kind of guy. Yep. And so we that, that actually makes for a really good dynamic. It does. For those that don't know about our podcast, we have a podcast and sometimes it's just me, but sometimes it's the two of us. And so that kind of works well. Um, because sometimes that straightforward, bold, just call it like it is kind of thing actually helps with clarity. Yep. And, uh, so, you know, that, so, when, but the important thing, I think there's something important about, um, you mentioned an apology video. So there's a well-known Calvinist, uh, scholar named James White, and mm -hmm. we made a response video to James White, something that he had said. And, um, Jonathan specifically, but maybe me a little bit too, got a little bit too straightforward. And so we felt bad about it and uh, thought, hey, we don't really apologize for the content of what we said, but maybe the tone wasn't right. And I think yeah. one of the most important things, not only in these theological discussions, but also in uh, debate when we're talking about with atheists and, and, and apologetics type discussions, is you've got to be willing to be cool that way and apologize if you said something wrong. Yeah. Admit if, if you're corrected and you were wrong. We don't have to be afraid of this. We've got the truth on our side as believers. And so we need to be willing to admit if we screwed up. And that's been one of the most liberating things. because I grew up with this mentality as a pastor. I pastored two churches and I grew up with this belief that 
if you're a preacher or if you're a Christian at all and you're doing evangelism, like you're sharing your faith with someone or talking about theology, then you need to be able to thump the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> even if you don't know what the Lord does say. <laughs> so, uh, but, but when I let go of that and realize it's okay to apologize, it's okay to say I yes. was wrong. That is helpful. And in fact, it increases our witness because people see that we're genuine. hundred percent. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it's funny because it seemed like, uh, it's like when Jonathan did it, it seemed like, uh, you were like, uh, away from the camera, just kind of twisting his arm a little bit. Like, oh, okay. I, yeah. I'm sorry. Actually, oh, okay. you know what? Here's the thing, honestly, about that. Uh, uh, and I hope maybe James White will see this, but uh, what, what's cool about that is I wasn't worried about it. And the reason I wasn't worried about it was because I didn't really say anything that was that bad. It was Jonathan that kind of really was like a bulldog there. So he came into my office one day and I'm doing something else. And he says, man, I just the Holy Spirit's got a hold of me and I don't want to do this. But I think I got it. I think to be right with God, we've got to make an apology video. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm all for it. Let's go do it. That's so it's actually him. He comes off really gruff, but he's actually this lovable little fuzzball. He's so, a teddy bear yeah. at heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome stuff. So uh, before we get into the video, uh, you are the, the, the president of, uh, okay. Trinity. You Trinity. can just say Trinity. Yeah, tr- <laughs> I, I, I say Trinity, but I want to make sure Trinity College of the Bible and Apologetics. Uh, and theological seminary. And theological yeah. seminary. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. And in fact, the most important thing for people to remember is we're a 100% online school. So you can take courses from wherever you're at and um, really just you can check out our website. And that's at Trinity SEM, Trinity Sem.edu. So check that out. And if you are interested in courses um, and, you, and you contact us, there's a little form there people can fill out. If you'll just mention that uh, that you're at the website because oh thanks because mm-hmm. of um, this show, then we'll make sure uh, that we take care of you and and honor that. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's the school that I'm at. My website is braxtonhunter.com. That's how humble I am, braxtonhunter.com. <laughs> and then, uh, but it's also trinityradio.org and evangelisticapologetics.org. So everything gets you the same place there. But um, and then the YouTube channel is I know you had it up on the screen a minute ago, but that's YouTube dot com slash Braxton Hunter. Awesome. So BraxtonHunter.com. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. So let's jump right into this uh video. Let's do um, it. So this is uh someone a part of Lingonair Ministries for those who are not familiar with Lingonair Ministries. Uh that is in Pennsylvania, I believe. Uh if I'm not mistaken, I think Le- I think Lingonair camp I think the word Lingonair comes from a city in Pennsylvania is where they started. I'm not okay. Yeah, I think that's where it came from. Uh, but uh, people do know R.C. Sproul, so um, so people are aware of of, of him and uh, R.C. Sproul. He's uh, the late R.C. Sproul. He just recently passed. I think probably a year or two ago, if I'm mistaken. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about R.C. Sproul, not to break in here, is that uh, he was a Calvinist. Uh, he's not now. He's with the Lord, so he knows the truth now. So he's not a Calvinist anymore. But uh, just, just yeah. But uh, getting a little snarky. But uh, but uh, he, in, even in spite of his being a Calvinist, he, as an apologist, uh, promoted um, a classical form of apologetics rather than presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics is what oftentimes Calvinists will use. So I appreciated that about him. 
I, yeah, you, I agree. You got it right all the way around now. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I agree with you. And, and uh, I think uh, presuppositionalism, for those who aren't aware of that, Scythe uh, <clears throat> Timbrew, Kate is a really big, staunch presup yep. uh, uh, guy. James White's a presup, uh, I believe, uh, as well. Um, uh, Jeff Durbin, uh, he's, a, he's a presup as well. Presuppositionalism is kind of like, and and you can chip in Braxton as much as you want. Presuppositionalism, as far as the apologetics, is like everything stems from um, God in the Bible. So there's no type of uh, point of view apart from um, uh, apart from the Bible and God. So using analogies, like Sites and Brookate actually wrote a book about this. Using non-biblical analogies, it's like a big no-no for him. For him as a presub. Um, you know, atheism isn't really a thing to him because it just, you know, to, to, to precepts and Bruton Cape, uh, specifically, it's kind of like, you're just unlearned. You're just an unlearned, you know, uh, non-believer, you know? So, yeah. uh, and for someone like you who deal with atheism a lot, uh, that's kind of like a contrast to, you know, to where you stand. Yeah. You said some good stuff there. I think that principally, um, the difference would be something like with uh, my form of apologetics, which is more of an evidential, specifically they refer to it as classical apologetics, but it's more of an evidential yeah. type of apologetics. We're, we're basically saying to the skeptic, all right, look, let's get down on the, on the ground here together and let's figure out what we agree about and let's build a case up that, uh, that, that shows that God is the most reasonable explan- explanation. Yep. Whereas a presuppositionalist starts at the top and he says, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get down there and reason up. Instead, um, not that they won't use arguments and stuff. They're always quick to tell you that they will, but they're going to presuppose. No, no, no. God exists. And, and, the, and the Bible is the word of God. And you can't make sense of the way the world is without assuming that as well. So that when you skeptics try to argue against Christianity or against God's existence, you're actually borrowing from us because you can't even make sense of logic without a God from whom these laws of logic come. Yep. So it's an issue. And as far as like the, no real atheist type thing is they would they would take Romans chapter one and they, they would say, look, um, uh, you, these people are in willful disbelief. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So they, so it, whether they are thinking about it consciously or not, they must be aware that there's a God, but they're but they're just in rebellion. And so uh, others will say more like what I would say, because I believe the Bible, too. And I believe Romans chapter one. And I would just say about atheists there are real atheists there are genuine atheists who are not being disingenuous uh but that doesn't mean i don't think that they suppressed the truth it's just that we as human beings are good at deceiving ourselves and so um willful disbelief is disbelief nonetheless and suppressing the truth results in a person who no longer believes so i don't think they're lying to you when they say that they're an atheist or some of them are but i don't think they're lying to you when they say that i just think it's the case that they they have bought into the cultural suggestions and suppress the truth that way. So a little bit of nuance there, but the principal idea is presuppositional is presuppose mm-hmm. the truth of Christianity. Whereas uh, people like me would argue up to the reasonableness of Christianity. Indeed. Yes. I'm an evidential apologist as well. Oh, praise the Lord. Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into this video. And of course uh, we're going to freestyle it. Uh, Whenever, <laughs> whenever Braxton feels like it's uh, a time, good. a good time to stop, uh, we will we will stop and we will dissect uh, what he is saying. So, uh, this is uh, Braxton. Uh, this is Burke Parsons. 
the title of the uh, Lingonera video is uh, Why Are People So Resistant to Reform Theology? And he's coming from the uh, affirmative. So he's coming from the standpoint of, uh, well, he's coming from the negative f- toward that question. Um, he's coming from the standpoint of um, people are so reform, uh, so resistant to reform theology from a Calvinist standpoint. So he explains that. So Braxton and I, who are non-Calvinists, we're going to dissect that from a non-Calvinist standpoint. So here we go. Having come to Christ not too many years before coming to uh, understand the doctrines of salvation and scripture, um, my my doctrine of God, the doctrine of God that I've been taught was was a God that did things a certain way and not another way. And so having to fight against those presuppositions about God that are not biblical. Okay, so let's start let's start there. So okay, so he so having to fight for uh against those presuppositions that, uh, that aren't biblical. So from a Calvinist standpoint, you have to put in, you know, uh you don't have to, but typically determinism and capitalism too, right? So from that sense, if he's fighting against it, wouldn't that be the will of God for him to fight against it? Yeah. So let's, so since we at least had one person in the audience in the live stream here who said, I, I kind of want to know more about this stuff, but I don't really know that much about it. Would mm-hmm. it be okay with you, Chris? It's your show. Would it be okay with you if I kind of explain the terrain here a little bit yes, so that people know what we're talking about? 100%. Okay. So Calvinism is a uh, theological soteriology has to do with the doctrine of salvation, which yep. is within theology. So what do we believe is true about the way salvation works and what it is? And so Calvinism, is um, at, at, at the very least is an understanding of how that works, how how soteriology works, uh, but it has implications that go far outside of that. So, um, so what Calvinism wants to say is, uh, look, you've got they they spell it out as tulip, T U L I P. Calvin didn't come up with that, but his followers did, yep. and the T stands for total depravity. And the idea behind total depravity is that we are all so totally depraved. It's a word that means crooked, but we are so crooked and sinful. Um, we're not as wicked as we could be only because of the grace of God, but we are so wicked, all of mankind, that we would never seek God for ourselves. Um, and passages like Romans chapter three would seem to indicate that, that uh, no, no one seeks after God. And uh, so so the and the natural man, you know, uh, doesn't please God. So you've got these kind of things going on that uh, under total depravity that say, look, if you were left by yourself, if God didn't step in, you would never seek God. And then you've got unconditional election, the you, which says and in that state, God unconditionally, not because of anything good or bad about them. God selects certain people, elects, in fact, certain people um, for uh, for salvation. And then the uh, the L is for limited atonement because he's only going to elect a certain number of people. Then Jesus only died for those certain number of people. Now, that might not sound too controversial. But if you think about what's being said so far, this is pretty controversial stuff. Jesus did not die for everyone and not everyone can be saved uh, because of this. And then the I is for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace says that um, God is going to irresistible, irresistible grace is not a good looking girl named Grace. She's irresistible. <laughs> what it is, it, this is a dumb preacher joke here. But uh, what, what that actually means is that uh, God is going to grace you 
um, which frankly, and we can talk about this later if you want to, but is uh, kind of a completely foreign under, uh, foreign way of thinking about what grace was in the first century uh, Palestinian world. Uh, but anyway, uh, so he's going to he's going to basically save you and you cannot resist it. It doesn't mean it's irresistible like a girl is irresistible. It means you cannot resist it. Mm-hmm. If he irresistibly graces you, you will be saved. Yep. Uh, but it's not as though it's not as though it's against your will, because remember, he's changing your will throughout this whole experience. Now, this is what kind of trips people up. You're going to feel as though you are free and you're making free will choices. But the fact is, everything that you're doing every step of the way has been determined. All of the choices that you think are free that you're making are determined by God. And (laughs) and, yeah, from eternity past and could not be otherwise. And then to finish it out, the P in Tulip is for perseverance of the saints. If God does this for you, then you will persevere to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the tulip of Calvinism. Now, here's the thing, and, I'll, and after this, I'll hush. But the thing that's so controversial about this to most people is that what it means is Calvinism runs on, and not all Calvinists are aware of this, and it kind of plays into what he just said. So we'll talk about that. But um, Calvinism runs on a different understanding of the nature of human freedom than what non Calvinists believe. Non Calvinists, all non Calvinists believe in what is known as libertarian freedom. And all libertarian freedom means is uh, what you probably already thought you meant when you talked about being free to make choices every day. It's you really could have done other than whatever you did end up doing or uh, nothing external to you determined what you would do. You were free. Um, So and then determinism is what Calvinism runs on. Determinism says uh, that though you experience these things as as though they're free, everything is determined. Now, lastly. Uh, what many Calvinists will say is that we are that they are compatibilists. Now, some Calvinists who are, have not are not as academically minded or have not read as much literature on this tend to think that compatibilism is like a middle of the road between free will and determinism. Mm-hmm. But it's not, and people that understand this understand that it's not. Compatibilism is determinism. Yes. All compatibilism is is a way of of talking about human freedom. Um, while determinism is true. And so what it says is um, everything, you're free to do whatever you want to do. Chris, you're free to do whatever you want to do. And, um, but you can't, but you can't determine what your own wants are going to be. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not free to want whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And so since you're not free to want whatever you want, your actions are driven by those wants. So if someone understands what we're talking about here, the fact is this is still just determinism. It's no different than if we just said determinism. So there's no compatibilism in in that sense. So that, but the reason that it's important for the Calvinist, even more than it's not, it's not as important for atheists. Atheists will just say we're determinists. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason it's fatalistic. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing fantastic, but sorry, I'm, I'm carrying away with it. No, no, you're good. You're good. You're (laughs) totally good. But I just want to make sure for, for those listening. So you have a, you have a theological determinism when it comes for the Calvinists and you have a fatalistic determinism when it comes for the atheists. So the atheists, you know, kind of like a a Sam Harris, for for instance, you know, he'll just say as a fatalistic determinist, he'll just say everything was just meant to be whatever, you know, we're created out of whatever and just whatever happens, happens. It was just meant to be. That's kind of like a fatalistic determinism. That's right. And so you have theological determinism, which, you know, the Calvinism comes in, God ordained everything to happen the way that it happened. Ultimately, like a John Piper would say this, 
ultimately for his glory. James White would say that too. So ultimately for his glory. So when you, when you push back and say, but what about, uh, and let, and you know, push back. What about the rape? What about the, uh, what, what about the abortion? What about eventually, you know, from, from a, from a theological deterministic standpoint, the, the answer to that would be, it's all for his glory. So, yeah. And this is why you'll often hear Calvinists say that they have a God-centered theology and that that we non-Calvinists have a man-centered theology. And my response to that is uh, to have a God-centered theology obviously sounds wonderful, and that's what we all want. We all want to please and be Christocentric and focused on Jesus and focused on God. But the the fact of the matter is God is interested in men. (laughs) God wants men to be saved. And so that's a very important, you know, yeah, I'm man-centered. God's man-centered. You know? <laughs> so uh, so that's that's an important thing, thing yeah. to say. Now, now, back to what he's just said here now, then. Uh, he just said something about um, he had to uh, unlearn kind of some of these presuppositions that he uh, had when he first came into Christianity. So it sounds to me like what he's saying is he came into Christianity as a non-Calvinist, or at least assuming some kind of non-Calvinism because he hadn't learned about Calvinism yet. Mm-hmm. And then when he re- learned about Calvinism, he had to get rid of some of those presuppositions that people like me and you probably have, you know, non-Calvinist presuppositions. Uh, This is a very interesting thing because frankly, and this will be a bit controversial, but what I think happens a lot of times is people who become Calvinists as pastors, I was a pastor. So I know that I like to get good pastoral commentaries from people like John uh, MacArthur. And I like to listen to pastors like, uh, like John Piper, who you mentioned. And so I'll start reading those guys. And um, if you don't know much about this debate, then you just hear all these high and lofty things about God that he's so sovereign and he's in control and all this. And you, what you're getting is Calvinism, but they never give you the direct or they rarely, I should say, give you Piper does more than MacArthur. But the direct implications of this, that what this means is everything is determined. Every sin you commit is determined. Yep. Those that die and go to hell go to hell because that's determined. Mm-hmm. They never could. There, there was no real state of affairs in which they would have freely come to Christ in, for salvation because God determined not to give them that those desires or, or nature. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of all of that, what pastors get into MacArthur and Piper, and then it's years down the line before they ever hear that real, you know, hardcore, difficult message from someone like, say, a Calvinist philosopher like Paul Helm. Yeah. And by that point, we're in the chat right now, actually, and she, she, she would attest to that. <laughs> I like to debate. Um, but I used to, I just, a lot of times now, if I just kind of don't stuck in their ways, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. There's no type of room for listen, agree. Like for instance, uh, as he comes up, it just, it just, I just, my antennas come up and I'm just like, oh, I can't, I irresistibly have to talk about soteriology. So move on with this. But what, what happened with me, Chris, was, I had been into apologetics. I was working on a degree in apologetics. I'd written an apologetics book and had a debate with a Harvard graduate on the evidence for God. But then I got into this soteriology stuff, this Calvinism stuff, and I had two live public debates on Calvinism and two more on the Internet with well-versed Calvinist opponents. 
But somewhere in there, I got convicted. Now, this is not for everybody. God has specialists in his kingdom, people like Leighton Flowers, who specialize in this. That's what he wrote his major writing project on for his doctorate. So that's perfectly understandable. But for me personally, as someone who believes he's called to be an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist, Ephesians 4.11 lists out different offices in the church. Evangelist is one of those. I feel called to be an evangelist to reach people who are not saved. Well, guess what? I may disagree with my Calvinist brothers, but as you and I both already said on this podcast, we think they're saved. And if they've trusted in Jesus and repented of their sins, they're saved. So the thing about it is I decided to get back into apologetics and get out of that world of debating Calvinism so much. So it's been difficult. But now I'm to the point where I can kind of when I'm at the table and where I used to just really be itching to say something, I've kind of calmed that that uh, that urge, you know. Well, praise God that uh, he's given you the urge to really address uh, a lot of skepticism and atheism nowadays. But uh, soteriology is, is still my thing when it comes. Oh, it's to, fascinating uh, when it comes yeah. to the when it comes to discussions. Yeah, like I said, we had a we had a conversation uh, because he I, I usually ask, you know, it's kind of like a feeler, you know, uh, who what authors or what YouTubers or whatever you listening to. And usually when people says like the MacArthur's, the uh, Pipers and things like that, I say, oh, OK, I know that uh, we're about to have a fun discussion. So uh, and it's all in love. Yeah. It's all it's all in love. You know, well, and hey, and we should recognize those guys have done great things for the kingdom. Certainly. And the my Calvinist friends who who may be may listen to this. And I can't believe Braxton just said what he said. I love you guys, and maybe I'm wrong. And if what I say doesn't apply to you, well, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. Don't worry about it. Indeed. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, uh, Jonathan uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, that's that's another one that uh, someone says, yeah. yeah, I was so inspired by Jonathan Edwards. I'm like, oh, okay, we're, so let's talk. What, <laughs> what do you say? Yeah. What are you inspired by? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, interesting comment here from my Ryan says, thanks for the explanation. I'm now able to realize I was raised in a Calvinism environment. Many people I know today are Calvinists, including family members. Based on what you've said, I lean to non-Calvinism. Thanksgiving should be fine. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that's really fun. That's a good. Yeah. And, and, and I can tell we're not getting very far with this, but I, I have to say this, which is when you talk to Calvinists and if you say something like, well, how could you believe something like that? How could you possibly believe uh, that that our God of love would determine before the foundation of the world to pass over certain people who are lost without even the possibility of salvation. Um, if you can get past the terminological stuff, because they want to argue and quibble about each thing I just said, but ultimately that's the that's where the rubber meets the road. Uh, what the, what they're thinking is 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 very much like if someone said to you, "How can you as a Christian believe that a God of love would allow anyone to go to hell?" Well. That's tough, man. As for any Christian who believes in hell, who believes in an actual hell, yeah. that's tough for us. And we have to admit that. But guess what? Since we believe that's the truth about the nature of reality, we just we just say, I don't like it either, but I, I have to grit my teeth and go with it. That's what a just God has to allow for. Um, that's how the Calvinist hears it when we say to them, how could you believe that God would pass over certain people? So um, I only say that because like at your Thanksgiving meal, uh, these deeply held beliefs that your Calvinist family members might have or friends, um, they may not be they may not they may wrestle with what they believe as well about this, but they just happen to believe that it's true. And so that's a tough spot. And I think we can appreciate that. Yeah. And I think Piper, like, for instance, Piper is really big on this. Like uh, he's he's really so you have Emeraldian, right, which is a four point Calvinist. And so a lot of a lot of Calvinists struggle with the limited atonement piece that Jesus only died for some and not 
died for all. Uh, but it's like uh, Piper, he's really big on the total depravity of man. So a lot of his preaching is just like, God, it's just so sovereign. And we're just here to just, you know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah. that's kind of like his like heart, you know, heart. And he, I can, you know, I, I'm not a fan of Piper's work, to be honest with you. I'll, I'll be honest. But at the same time, you can tell with his preaching that he just, based on, you know, based on just really the T part of the tulip part, he's just like, man, we are just so wretched. We're, you know, this is a real big thing for Calvinists. We're, you know, we're corpse like dead is a, is a, is a phrase that's uh, heavily used within the Calvinist camp. So Piper yeah. would just be like, uh, you know, we're, we're just so depraved and, you know, uh, we're, we're just sinful and wicked and wretched. And thank God that he'll just pull some out of this, you know, world full of just wretched dead people. Right. You know, that's, that's typically the. Calvinist right. And we're, and, and, and actually, Chris, if, cause I think you sent me this clip and I watched it through one time. I think he gets to that issue mm-hmm. in just a few moments. So, so I will want to talk about that, but, but I, you know, these guys, what I appreciate about a guy like Piper is Piper for one, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's the one who wrote the, the article. There's something like, how does a sovereign or how does a loving God exercise his sovereignty or something? He was talking about the fact that Piper, for all he knew at the time when he wrote the article, his kids might not be elect or something like that. You know, I can appreciate that a guy believes what he thinks the Bible says, even if I disagree with him about what the Bible says, that as horrible as it sounds to me and does not seem to reflect the God that I think uh, the Bible gives us. The fact is I can appreciate a guy who says, dadgummit, this is what I think it says. And I'm going to believe it, even if it's not what I want to believe. Mm -hmm. I can appreciate that. That's, that's a level of boldness and courage. Yeah. Ryan's asking, are we not depraved though? Yeah, I would say, I would say, yes, uh, we, we are, we are depraved. Um, but we're not like, we're not like corpse like that. Like they'll use like Lazarus, for instance, you know, and, and, and you know, we'll say we're, 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 we're in, we're not, uh, like to a Calvinist depravity is you're 100% unable to respond, you know, yourself, unless you're irresistibly drawn by God. You know, you're a dead corpse. God looks at you as a dead corpse and bring you up. There's no, you have nothing to do with it. And they'll call that synergism, you know, as opposed to monergism. R.C. Sproul uses monergism a lot when he yeah. was, when he was alive. So, yeah. See, the thing about it is you are like a, to them. They, they Ephesians chapter two talks about uh, that. And, and it's the idea that we're we're dead. And so uh, they say, well, then what? And this is what they'll say. What can a dead man do? As you just said, and they'll they'll point to Lazarus. Well, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. They say, how could you ever think you could call out to God when you're dead? A dead man can't do anything. But wait a minute. What does the Calvinist think that a dead man can do in this sense? A Calvinist thinks that someone who is spiritually dead can uh, walk and talk and and do all kinds of things. They can do uh, moral things. And they're happy to tell you that, that you, you'll find unregenerate uh, lost people that are able to like, um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, Kevin just distracted me there. I love Kevin. Love. He's awesome. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but they can do moral things. They can help little old ladies cross the street. They can, they can do nice things like that. They can even do spiritual things, Chris. They can even do spiritual things. The thing is the only spiritual things they'll ever do are wicked spiritual things. Right. But what's the one. And so basically a dead man on Calvinism, what can a dead man do? Here's what a dead man can do. Literally everything except the one thing he's commanded to do. And that is so odd to me. Yeah. You know, what can a dead man do? Everything except the one thing that God commands 
that right. he does. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think we're depraved. But here's the thing: a Calvinist needs to show me somewhere in the fall of man in Genesis. Uh, where we lose our libertarian freedom uh, that we talked about before. We lose our free will. Um, wh- where do we lose this free will? Nobody can point me to a proof text about where in Genesis chapter three, we lost our free will. Mm-hmm. What we have there is um, a, a systematic theology taken from across scripture, which is fine. We all have to do that. But then uh, looking back at Genesis three and, and, and implying that we must have, or assuming that we must have somehow lost our, freedom. But the Bible never, I can be a slave, for example, the Bible describes us, you know, that way too. I, I can be a slave Doulos. and yet long for my freedom. Yeah. You know, I can want to be free. Mm-hmm. So I, that's kind of how I'd answer that. But yes, we're, we're depraved. All men will sin. Romans three twenty three. all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Indeed. Absolutely. Yep. All right. That was an excellent response to, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being so verbose. No, please. I, I appreciate ver- verbose soteriological, uh, conversations. I, uh, I don't get to talk about Calvinism much anymore, Chris. Oh, well, this is perfect for you then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, let's, let's continue. Uh, suppositions about God. That's, I think one of the reasons. And, um, and we have to sort of undo a lot of that bad theology before we can really understand the right biblical theology. I think for many Christians, and there are even some that I know, uh, who um, really still struggle with the doctrines of grace. And, um, and, and, and The doctrines of grace is tulip for those, uh, for those who don't know. For those yeah. who, when, when Calvinists say doctrines of grace, they mean tulip, tulip theology. Mm-hmm. Part because I think they're struggling with them academically and exegetically. They're struggling to understand certain passages and certain verses, as I did. That was the big struggle for me. I... Okay, so what are the passages uh, that you can think of uh, that he's that he could be referencing? Well, there are several passages. Typically, what we most often think of is Romans chapter nine. Mm-hmm. Um, Romans chapter nine is kind of like the the uh, you know the, the most obvious place that most people go when they want to talk because the book of Romans is a is very much laying out for you kind of Christianity. And when you get to Romans chapter nine. Uh, you have this situation where um, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Okay, so if you ever, yeah, if, well, yeah. but yeah, but most people don't realize that. Yeah, and so exactly. The, the, That's why I said it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you're 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 well versed in this stuff, but not everybody is. And so what they say is, well, look, I know it seems odd to you to say that Jake, you know, to say that God would before anyone did anything determine that certain people. Uh, go to heaven and he'll pass over the rest. Or if you're what's known as double predestinarian, you just call it like it is. I think and say he determines some to go to heaven and determines some to go to hell. But look, if if you have a problem with that, well, then you really got a problem with scripture and not with me, because in Romans uh, chapter nine, we see there that uh, before either one of these children had done anything good or bad, Jacob, he loved and Esau have I hated. Um, the, the thing is, if you if you go back to the text about Jacob and Esau, what you find is, uh, first of all, and I and I'll give them this. This may not be the most relevant uh, way of approaching this, but I'll throw it in there since it always gets thrown in. Is that uh, uh, it, it was said two nations are warring in your womb, and the reason it was said because Jacob and Esau were wrestling there, and the reason that it was said two nations are wrestling in your womb is because you would have two nations come out of these two sons yep. ultimately. And so, what if you go to Malachi as you referenced earlier? What you'll find is. Yes, he did love. He did determine before they were ever born to to uh, to love one and hate the other. But love and hate are not these existential emotional responses that you and I experience when we see a romantic comedy or something. 
Mm-hmm. What's going on? That's not what's going on there. What's going on is these this love and hate is I'm going to love Jacob by uh, uh, engaging in this covenant, and and I'm going to uh, you know bless these people with Edom. I'm going to tear down the mountains and and these sorts of things. So that's how I've loved and how I've hated. It's not this existential love, and it's not about individuals. And what the Calvinist needs that to be about is uh, individuals. Yeah. And so, um, so that's a very, that's a very important, I think, and interesting. There's other things there in the passage that give it away. The older shall serve the younger. Well, where does that happen in the text? It happens if we understand these things as, uh, nations, uh, in, in, instead of individuals. So Romans chapter nine is, is an important one. Uh, I would just say at this point, Leighton Flowers has a book on this, uh, that people could check out. Um, and he, and he goes through the whole thing. It's all about Romans nine. Uh, but then uh, Ephesians chapter one and John chapter six, Ephesians chapter one is the passage that would um, talk about uh, Ephesians. One talks about how he chose us. Uh, we were chosen in him right before the foundations of the world. Yeah. Um, the, the, this is where uh, now people should know that election ju- election is not necessarily a spiritual or religious term. There are all kinds of eclectos things. There are all kinds of things that it just means choice. Like you'd have a choice, you know, cut of beef or something. You know, it's 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 choice. Well, in this case, Uh-oh, uh, choice meats. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but here he's talking about choice um, uh, with with a, a people. But notice something: the Calvinist again needs this to be individual. He needs it to be what's called individual election. Uh, and what what we would affirm, I would think you would affirm what what Leighton affirms, and I affirm. Corporate. is what's called a corporate election. That's right. Um, it says we were chosen in him. We, now I think it's like um, 24 times or something. It says we or us or you, all plural terms in Ephesians 1. And I think 10 times it says in Christ, in him, in the beloved. We, a, a plurality of people, a group of people, were elected or chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, here's what that means. And you know this, Chris, but your audience might not is that means uh, you the, the corporate body of Christ is chosen. If you're, the, the Christ is chosen, basically, if you want to get down to it. Jesus is the one that's elect. But you get to choose. Nowhere in the passage does it say you were chosen to be in Christ. It says you were chosen in Christ. And so the important thing to understand there, uh, yeah, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. So uh, the us there is plural. So you get to decide whether you're going to be a part of that corporate body or not. Uh, but uh, uh, now God didn't have to offer that opportunity to you, but he did. And everyone has that opportunity. And so you get to choose whether you're going to be in Christ. But the thing is, those that are in Christ, they're the elect. Yeah. So a good, there's a good analogy for this that I, that, I, that I think is pretty good. Like if the White House invited, uh, like I, where I live, we have Central, uh, uh, we have Castle High School. So if, uh, if the White House invited the Castle High School choir, to sing at the White House. The Castle High School Choir was chosen to sing at the White House. But you may be able to choose whether you're going to be in the Castle High School Choir or not. Mm-hmm. So that's what's chosen, the corporate group of Castle High School Choir. But you as an individual can decide whether you're going to be in that group or not. And this is the last thing I'll say about this because I know I'm sucking the oxygen out of the room, Chris, and you got to forgive me. I, the thing I disagree. About, I disagree. <laughs> but, but the thing about it is, is the ancient uh, the first century world was uh, a, a very much a corporate thinking group. It was an honor shame culture, very much like we think about certain Asian cultures, as best I understand them from my Asian friends today, where it's it's about the corporate group and bringing honor or shame on your group. 
And so uh, this is why Paul, for example, uh, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. He's trying to say, you Christians are, uh, the Jews are over here. They're shamed in the eyes of the Romans as a corporate group. The Romans are over here. They're shamed in the eyes of Jews as, as a corporate group. You Christians are now, you're not among the Jews or the Romans. What are you? You're really ashamed. But Paul yeah. says, don't worry about that because in the eyes of God, you're honored. And so Amen. that's the most important thing. So uh, bottom line is what we have here is corporate election. The body of Christ is elect, but yeah. you can choose to be in it or not. And then John chapter six is where it talks about. And that's the last one I'll, I'll talk about here. Real quick, John chapter. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Real quick. Um, and, and a lot of Calvinists, they, they, they say Ephesians one, four, but they kind of miss Ephesians one to be the audience to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. That's and right. so it's like, that's the audience that Paul is talking to, you know, in this. Mm -hmm. And I think even Kevin brings up a good point right here. Verse 13, it says, uh, in him were you also sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel salvation, and when you believed, you know, so it's, uh, so that part is important uh as a as a part of not ne not necessarily uh you know eternity past you know there was a there was a process and i think you you mentioned romans 9 and even romans 8 you know they call it the the ordo salutis you know the the golden chain of, of salvation um you know regeneration before faith is is where they go um so yeah just just to bring yeah this is all the this is all theology and philosophy and guess what i love theology and philosophy but but it's much cleaner than this what the bible gives us again and again and again is you hear the gospel you believe the gospel Amen. you hear the gospel and you humbly believe the gospel that's that's what it that's what's necessary and not just in terms of mental assent but of course believe for christians is uh, uh, is mental assent, like you accept that it's true, but then it's also trusting and, and, and uh, projecting your loyalty to Christ. Indeed. So, um, so yeah, I think that's important. Now, um, on John chapter six, uh, th th what's interesting here is you have this go down a little bit to like, uh, around, uh, let's go down to the forties, uh, John chapter six and go down into the forties. Uh, yeah, let's see. This is a specific moment in Christ's ministry or in the history of the world, really. Jesus is on the earth, right? Jesus has come, but he's not yet died on the cross. Mm -hmm. And Pentecost has not yet come. And so it's a very unique time, really unique. And, and it's unique in the sense that there were people uh, in the region, um, and in fact, throughout the Mediterranean world that we find out, who were worshipers of the one true God, even many of them, the one true God of Israel and knew that this is the one true God of Israel. But uh, but Jesus had not yet come. And now Jesus has come. And now they're 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 already his. They're already his people. They've already been worshiping him. So when Jesus comes up on the scene, if they're truly worshiping the one true God, well, then when they encounter Jesus, they'll be drawn to him. Mm -hmm. Th this has nothing to do with God deterministically you know, drawing people uh, as if in a dragnet in the sense that we're often used to thinking about it. This is a specific time in the history of the world when Jesus was on earth, but had not yet died. And there were people who were worshiping the one true God. They were his and he gives them to Jesus. Now, how, how does, uh, what kind of people are going to be drawn? Is, is it only a special elect few? And, and is it, is it where nobody else, people are not allowed to come? Well, here's the thing. It says everyone who has learned and heard, listened to and learned from the Father, heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. So here's the simple solution to this. Would you like to be drawn to Jesus? Well, I think this is specifically describing a situation that was uh, somewhat unique. 
But even so, you want to be drawn to Jesus? Well, hear and learn from the Father. <laughs> Freely choose to hear and learn from the Father. Uh, and you'll be drawn to Jesus. Isn't that what we tell people in evangelism anyway? Go home and read the Gospel of John and all that. Yeah, so anyway, th that's that's kind of John 6. So those are the three primary texts. There are a lot of other texts that will come up in the debate. But he's he's probably, you know, describing, hey, I had to I had to really work through some of this stuff. Yeah, the golden chain of redemption yeah. here in Romans chapter 8. Um, again, now, uh, with yeah, this, let's go ahead and read it real quick. Where's Where does it begin? 29. Uh, let's see. 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the Calvinists would have, have you, that has to read, for those he predestined, he also predestined. Because they understand foreknow to kind of be a stand-in for predestination. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's redundant to me. For those he foreknew, uh, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified those so what this is meant to show if the calvinist is exegeting it is look um there's a certain group that before the foundation of the world were predestined uh to be the elect and those same people were uh conformed into the image of the son uh and th those he predestined he called this is the same group of people nothing changes we don't lose any we don't gain any he also called, he also, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Except for the fact that if you don't presume that foreknow means something other than foreknow, it, it, uh, then, then you can read this a couple of ways. So if you take what is known as a simple foreknowledge type of view that many Arminians will hold, what it's saying here is those people that he foreknew would trust in him in, in, in faith. Well, he pre he predestines that those people will become like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've, I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist, and I can tell you this. The Southern Baptists that I grew up with, every last one of them will tell you, you're free to choose to be saved or not. But if you choose to be saved, you will become like Jesus, mm -hmm. either in this world or the next. You are in that process of sanctification. You will become like Jesus. So they can affirm that. But on top of that, Leighton Flowers, if, unless he's changed his uh, perspective, and I'm quite I'm quite persuaded by this. Is um, is is that this is uh, something like describing those he knew before? In other words, those perhaps those uh, saints of old, you know, uh, th those he knew before, uh, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the. So you kind of see how that that can be taken a couple of ways. With a lot of verses that are supposed Calvinist proof texts, there are multiple ways to take them, and in my humble yet accurate opinion. Um, those are, I'm the world's leading expert on my own opinion. Um, and, <laughs> and there's usually like three or four or five different ways to take a passage. And to my mind, the least likely in almost all of them is the Calvinist, yeah. uh, interpretation. Yeah. So, yeah. From, uh, from, from my studies, I've, 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 uh, saw the same, the same thing with, with that, as far as that type of interpretation, as far as predestined from eternity past, and there's nothing that we can do here, but just kind of, you know, be a part of the domino effect, essentially, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So let's get into that. That was fantastic. I like your verbosity. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Chris. <laughs> We're going to make it. See, the good thing is that this clip is so short. So, yeah, yeah. So it gives us time to really dissect it. You know what I mean? Like with short right. clips like that. So I think that's good. Uh, yep. Okay, here we go. I understood the, the theology of it, I understood the explanation of it, I understood the rationale of it. But as a, a Greek and Hebrew student uh, and a theology student at the time, 25 years ago, um, 
I was studying certain passages saying, now this passage doesn't seem to line up with this passage. And so it really took a right understanding of hermeneutics, of a right method of interpretation to help me see how all of scripture fit together and how. Okay. So why would hermeneutics like, okay, so what would be the Calvinist standpoint of a hermeneutical approach saying, Oh, Calvinism's the right to go. Yeah, I don't know. That's why I'm not a Calvinist. I'll tell you this. I think, um, you know, uh, hermeneutics is important. And what you want to do is you want to, as best you can, anybody going to seminary is going to learn this. What what you want to do is you want to, as best you can, get yourself, have an understanding of the original author. Who is the original author? And the people to whom the original author is writing the audience, yep. and the culture in which they are, are living, you know, what, what is this culture like? And, and, uh, how do, what do words mean? So for example, let's talk about grace for just a minute. Grace, um, it was not originally a religious or uh, theological term. We think of it that way. Oh, grace, you know, that's, and we probably should because this is a, you know, because the Bible uses that language, but, um, in the first century world, you had uh, a world of um, what is called patron-client reciprocity. Now, if people want to study more on this, I think it's so helpful. There's a good book that is really readable. And if you don't know much at all about theological stuff, you can still understand it. And it's by a guy named David De Silva. And it's called, um, uh, it, I always get the words mixed up, but it's Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, I think is what it's called. And it gives you an understanding of what the first century world of the Mediterranean world was like. And so grace, for example, what is patron client reciprocity? You're like, what is, I thought Patreon was like where you give podcasters money. Well, it is. And that's page. They're capitalizing on the term patron. So in the ancient world, if I needed, Chris, if you were a store owner and you had some money and you had some goods and I needed, uh, I needed something for my, my, you know, uh, field, I needed some fertilizer for my field or something. I don't have it. What am I going to do? I'm in trouble. So I come to you and and uh, and you are my patron and I'm your client. And so what you will do is you will give me the goods. You can give me the goods that I need and you expect nothing. That's good. You expect nothing in response um, except and you don't even expect this necessarily, but it goes with the relationship that I'm going to praise your name publicly. I'm going to go around talking about Chris gave me the fertilizer that I needed for my field and I couldn't pay for it. Sometimes what you'll do is since, and so this is like, if you go to the ancient world and I've been all over Turkey and all over Israel, what you're going to find is you're going to find little statues everywhere. And you're going to find little inscriptions that are talking about how awesome some dude Chris is. Well, why is there a statue here praising Chris? Why is there an inscription? Well, it's because Chris was probably a patron who graced, his client was something that his client needed. And so what is the natural response that that client should have? He should praise the name of his patron publicly so that everyone hears it. So it was actually a relationship, uh, like a business relationship term that then uh, the New Testament authors capitalized on and used it. Said God is your patron. God is the one who graces you. And uh, but sometimes you need a mediator. And the Bible gives us a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yep. Now, here's the thing. All that sounds really great and really spiritual and really interesting. And it is. But for this guy that was on the video what, with what he's saying, he learns the Greek and praise God for that. Greek is very helpful. And we are fortunate to live in a day and age where we have access to resources. And he mentioned like, you know, hermeneutical principles like what I just described. 
But what I find often is the case with with Calvinists, not always. And again, if you're not this kind of Calvinist, then don't feel like I'm talking about you, is that they'll focus on the Greek to the exclusion of much of a study of the socio-rhetorical and socio-cultural background, like what we just described. What did these words mean to the original people? And I think if you take both of those things into consideration, you won't come away with Calvinism. For example, one thing you'll definitely come away with is an understanding that corporate language and having a federal head and a corporate body and that we're not talking about the individual, we're talking about the corporate group is very much at home. That kind of thinking with the uh, ancient Mediterranean world, not this individualistic type of thinking that we as 21st century Westerners are so happy with. Mm. Well, you uh, have graced us to uh, drop that knowledge, so I think I should uh, <laughs> pay you a deed. <laughs> you don't have to pay me nothing, man. <laughs> all right, so uh, all right, here we go. Let's uh, bring it back here. One passage of Scripture interpreted another passage of Scripture, one that was uh, more clear, helped to interpret one that was perhaps less clear to me. I think there are some still that have an understanding of God who is – a loving God, and while they would confess that he is sovereign and they would believe that he is sovereign so that they think, um, they struggle to understand how a loving God could condemn or how a loving God could not elect everyone. See, that's that's more of the Piper route um, as far as defending that, as far as why does God love, you know, um, loves everyone but condemn. So that kind of falls into the um, the L again, it goes back to the limited atonement piece of the tulip. Um, Kevin says, uh, Kevin, uh says their interpretation, uh, causes a contradiction. None of the passages of scripture contradict. They make it seem like there's, uh, actually contradictions, but there's not an interesting point there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so essentially, like I said, uh, Piper, he, he says a lot about that as far as just from a sovereignty standpoint, because a lot of times, there's a God and so God is sovereign. We don't deserve to even be chosen. You know, that's, that's more of a Piper route and a MacArthur routes more of like, uh, well, we're just, we're all dead. And so we should be thankful because like we were all just heading, you know, there anyway. So the ones who are picked up and plucked out of that should be, you know, preaching the gospel anyways, you know, and that's usually their defense of why do Calvinists still evangelize? It's like one, because the Lord tells me to do it anyways. And two, because that's just kind of our duty for being picked out. So, yeah. Yes. I think he's going to say this in just a minute about um, that. basically what you just articulated that. Um, look, everybody deserves it. So the fact that God comes in and saves a few, nobody has anything to complain about because the ones that die and go to hell, that's what they deserved anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. And we all deserve that. Okay. He, I think he's going to say something like that in just a few moments, but it's very Calvinistic uh, thinking. And, and in fact, I can agree that we all deserve it, right? That's the Christian message. That's not a Calvinist message. We all deserve it. But here's the difference. So there's two things on the table right now in this clip that you just played. One is what is the understanding of sovereignty? He kind of glossed over that. But what is the understanding of sovereignty? And secondly, um, how? why do non-Calvinists have problems with God's justice and love as explained by the Calvinist. So let's tackle sovereignty first. Uh, sovereignty actually means something. Sovereignty doesn't already has a meaning. Sovereign to be a sovereign is to be a king. Mm -hmm. And we actually know about sovereigns because we have sovereigns in our world right now. There are kings in this world right now to be a sovereign 
means that you're in complete control of your realm. It means you can step in at any time. It means you can do as you please. You can punish. You can reward. But it does not mean, it has never meant that you determine the movement of every molecule in your kingdom. It doesn't mean that. Now, someone says, yeah, but it's God we're talking about. Right. But what changes is not the meaning of sovereignty. What changes is the size of the realm. A king here on earth has a realm that might be, you know, several miles big or even as big as an entire nation. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. God's God is sovereign over. He's the king over the entire universe. The king of the cosmos. That's right. The king of the cosmos. (laughs) That's right. He's the king of of the whole of the whole universe, the whole cosmos. Uh, But but that doesn't mean that it changes the meaning of sovereignty. God, the Bible says God stepped. God can do as he pleases. God can step in at any time. He can punish. He can reward. That's what a king, a sovereign does. But here's the thing. Uh, what Calvinists, in my opinion, do is they confuse the, 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 um, the role that he is a sovereign um, with how that is carried out, how that position of sovereignty is, is displayed or carried out. Um, and, and so there's a big difference. If I'm a sovereign, I'm a king. But how I rule as a king is a separate question from am I king? God is sovereign. He is king. But that's a separate question from does that mean that determinism is true? Mm -hmm. And what Calvinists have done is they have tied sovereignty and philosophical determinism together so that they can go, well, you believe that God is sovereign, right? Well, yeah, of course I believe. Every Christian believes God. Oh, well, then you're a Calvinist because, because that's Calvinism. No, 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 that's, that's, that's different. All Christians believe that God or should believe that God is maximally sovereign. He is as sovereign as he can be, but that is a separate question from how he exercises that sovereignty. So that's the first part of that. Yep. Uh, do you have anything you want to yeah, add to that? Yeah, real quick on that. I think, I think A.W. Tozer, uh, I think he explains it really good as far as like, I think he makes it like a chess game and he talks about how, um, you have the, the, the sovereign God from a Calvinist standpoint is, not only am I going to uh, play you in chess, I'm going to tell you every single move that you move and then, you know, beat you in the game of chess that I yeah. determine for you to move every single place. And then you have a non-Calvinist uh, sovereign standpoint of, you know, I can I'm God. So I have the ability to do whatever I want. So you can come in and think you're, you're going to beat me in chess all day long. I'm going to devour you in chess. I'm going to devour you in chess. I'm going to devour you in chess. No one's bigger and greater than I am because I am king of the universe. And right. so that gives every single person to will and make the choices that, that they make. But at the same time, God is greater than any of his opponents that he's playing with chess. So how that, that makes, makes more sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And so the second thing there is the issue of fairness and, and justice and love and all that sort of thing. So here's the thing. He said that we non-Calvinists, I think if I remember him correctly, that we have a problem with uh, this idea that God would not choose everyone or that God would choose some and not others. No, 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 no. Here's, here's the thing about this. On my view, not everyone's going to get saved either. I'm not a universalist. I don't right. believe that everyone's going to be in heaven. I would love that to be true, um, but that's not way I understand. That's not what I understand my Bible to teach. But um, but but what what when I look at at uh, what's going on, on my view, everyone truly is guilty. Everyone truly does deserve hell because they freely chose to do the things that they do, which means. You have real responsibility. I don't believe you have a real responsibility if you don't have freedom. 
You know, the, the Bible says in Romans uh, uh, chapter one, verse 20, the invisible things of God is eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Yes. And what he's talking, he's talking about idolaters there, mm-hmm. uh, people who make idols. But but the point is that they don't have an excuse. They don't believe in one maker God because he's made it clear to them. All right. The, the idea is since there is sufficient uh, reason for them to believe if they don't believe. They have no excuse. All right. So now let's take my daughter for, for a minute. I've got an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. Let's take the eight-year-old. If I tell her to pick up her backpack from school and take it to her bedroom and she doesn't do it, then she has no excuse because she she has perfectly capable of picking up her backpack and taking it to her room like her daddy told her to. Mm-hmm. But if I were laying on the couch and I told her, Jacqueline, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to pick up the couch with my laying on it. And carry me and the couch on your back with one hand to your room. And she doesn't do that. Has, is she without excuse? No, she got a great excuse. She can't possibly <laughs> do it. Right. And right. it would be unjust. And every Calvinist listening would know it would be unjust for me to punish her for not doing that mm-hmm. because it was impossible for her to do it. Right. Yeah. So on our view, the reason that it's just for God to to save some and not others is because he gave everyone the freedom not only to choose him, but everyone is guilty because of their free choice to sin. On his view, on the Calvinist view, whether this particular speaker understands this or not, and I suspect that he does, he seems well-educated, is the reason that a particular sinner sins is because God determined either directly or indirectly that that sinner would do whatever sinful thing they do, and they they rejected Christ because they were never offered the irresistible grace to begin with. Mm-hmm. There is no state of affairs it was unchangeably determined that they would not choose Christ and that they would sin. So do I have a problem with that? Yeah, I have a problem with that for the same exact reason that you would have a problem with the concept of my punishing my daughter for not picking me in the couch up and taking, because you couldn't possibly do it. Now, if the Bible, if I thought the Bible taught that I would have some more thinking to do because whether I like the way that paints God or not, I have to believe what the Bible says. But the good news is, I don't think the Bible teaches any such thing. Mm. Amen. Yeah, if I if I told, uh, I have three kids, uh, if I told, uh, I have two sons and a daughter, if I told one of them, hey, spill that water on the table, do it now. <laughs> and, then, yeah. Yeah. and then they spilled on the table. Why did you spill? Oh, my goodness. Go to your room. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like, you spilled the water, right? <laughs> you spilled the water. Go to your room. Am yeah. I sobbing right there, or just you know, just some crazy loony? You know, <laughs> that just wants. Well, to you're that. sovereign over your house, but you're also crazy loony. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two and one there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so the question that they ask, and the question that I asked at that time, was, well, why doesn't God just save everyone? Why doesn't God elect everyone? And while that's a fair question, it's really not an appropriately biblical question, because if we understand the fall of man, if we understand that we are at enmity with God, that we are in opposition to him, that we ran from him, that we hid from him, that when he came down and took on flesh, that we killed him. Okay. Uh, You take this, Chris. What do you say to that? What would you say in light of what we've just discussed? What would you say to that? I would say... I, I would say that I, I, again, I would bring back c- compatibilism and and, uh, and determinism. Right. You know, I, I would I would say that all those things to a Calvinist was ordained by God from eternity past to happen. Right. So who you know to a Calvinist, who's the blame for that? 
you know, right. and, and that's and that's what this when I listened to the when I looked at this initially, this part right here, I was like, this is mind boggling to me. Like <laughs> we we did all those things, you know, but at the same time, it's like. Wait a minute, who deserves the blame? Who 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 deserves it goes back to the whole uh water thing. You know, it, it goes, go to your room, you water spilling rebellious kid that I right. told, that I told to do. But by the way, but, but go but go to your room though, you know. So you know, interestingly, uh, there's a book by uh a guy named Guillaume Bignon that is really popular right now. Uh, and it's he's a wonderful guy, he's a friend of David Wood. You may have heard of David Wood. And um, Guillaume is, uh, is, is a, was a French atheist who became a Christian, and he's a Calvinist. And, well, hey, you know what? Praise the Lord. I'd rather you be a saved Calvinist than an unsaved atheist, right? Um, so, he, so he came to Christ, and, um, and because he was very philosophically minded, he wrote this really dense academic book um, on, on uh, basically moral responsibility on a, cal- on a compatibilist uh, determinist paradigm. Mm-hmm. Really great book. And in fact, I think it's the best book from a Calvinist trying to defend what I think is an indefensible position that I've ever seen. And he does a really good job. And he's honest. I, you know, he, he says somewhere in there, you know, that we need to understand that compatibilism is not, not determinism, you know? So, so you need to understand that it's determinism's at play here, but uh, somewhere in the book, he, if I understand him correctly, the analogy that he gives is he, he describes two kinds of uh, ability and um, one of them is categorical ability and one of the other, maybe it's conditional ability. I don't, I don't know what it is, but the, the idea is here, and this is the analogy he gives, and it's a strange analogy, uh, but he says, all right, let's imagine you've got a guy with no arms, all right? He's an armless man and he's commanded to hug someone, all right? Now, I don't know where this is happening that a man is being commanded to hug another man uh, with no arms, but anyway, you got an armless man who's being commanded to hug. Now, this man is not responsible if he doesn't hug because he couldn't possibly hug because he doesn't have arms to hug with. Right. So we don't hold him responsible. okay? Mm -hmm. but if you have a man who has arms but is determined not to hug, but he's commanded to hug, he is responsible because at least if he had been determined to hug, he had the arms to hug with. Mm -hmm. Now, to my mind, that is the most absurd thing. (laughs) If the guy that has arms is determined not to hug and the guy who doesn't have arms couldn't hug in both cases neither one can at all hug because neither one in the one case guy didn't have arms the other case the guy has been determined by god not to hug Mm -hmm. and unchangeably it is the case he won't do it and i'm sitting here reading this and it's like it's like bignon unless i'm horribly misunderstanding them i don't think that i am i've talked about this with calvinists who recommended me the book is I'm, I'm reading him and it's like, he's like, see there solves everything. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> this is, but it is the best they can do to try and hold on to moral responsibility where we are worthy to be condemned mm-hmm. when yet we had no free will to make any of the choices, positive or negative that we make. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. Um, all right. So let's, uh, there's only a few, a little bit left. So we're going to make it, Chris. We are. We are. It's only 30 seconds left. <laughs> it's only when we grasp that, that we're all deserving of hell and death, that we can really begin to ask the more appropriate biblical question as to why does God save anyone? Why does God elect anybody? And then we begin to really understand the grace of God. And then we begin to say, why me? Hmm. Yeah, same problem here. It's like, um, on my view, 
Uh, yeah, that's a meaningful question, you know, because we are all freely choosing to commit horrible, sinful acts. Mm-hmm. And even even like guys like me and you who probably, you know, aren't out here cheating on our wives, uh, which is good news since your wife's in the chat. But um, we're not we're not we're not out here cheating on our wives. We're not killing anybody. We're not we're not you know we're paying our taxes. We're doing what we're supposed to do. You know, we're, we in the eyes of the world, we're not immoral people. But the fact is, the smallest lie that I tell, the little deceit that I have, the you know whatever thing that I don't even think is that big of a deal. Sometimes I don't even notice it. In the eyes of a holy God, compared to His holiness, yes. He would be, how could he ever save any of us? I'm like, why? Thank God, praise God for his mercy that I freely chose to commit these sinful acts. And yet he is merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah. Praise God for that. But on that guy's view, on Calvinism, and he's my brother. I don't, that guy, I don't mean to be snarky. <laughs> but, but but on this guy's view who who is saying, we are all determined. And God determined that the, every single thing what we would do is what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little bit baffled by the concept of thinking, why would God save any of us? I mean, it, it strikes me a little bit as a kid setting up action figures and knocking them all down. You know, I, I don't I don't quite understand what's what's going on there. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I, I do mean to to provide some force mm-hmm. to this, you know, to that kind of a statement. So yeah. uh, all in all, I'm sure this is a wonderful guy. Seems like a really nice guy. He's a brother in Christ. I'm sure that we would sit down and agree on everything else. Um, or at least most things, but on this issue, I think Chris, <clears throat> this is why this issue is so fascinating to people like you and me is with our brothers and sisters, even other Christian apologists, we're walking together as we're looking at scripture and we're agreeing, agreeing, agreeing. And then when it comes to this issue, it's like we wildly go in opposite yes. directions. <laughs> it's like, wait, you believe what, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's so funny. Uh, um, you know, my, my best friend and I, we, we, we discuss theology and apologetics every day. And, um, we hung out last weekend with some, with some other fellas and, uh, we were driving together in my truck and we were talking about, you know, just, just two black guys talking about James White, you know, that happens every day. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was, I was talking to him and I was like, you know what? As much as, you know, I, I, I said, you know what, man, it just, it just hurts my heart how skilled and knowledged James White is. And just, I just cannot take him like this kind of like in this, this is all in, you know, and I explained to him, this is all just kind of infighting. You know what I mean? This is within brothers. You know, this is like brothers. I, I have a younger brother. It's like me and me and my brother fighting in the house or something like that. Yeah. Wrestling in the so, backyard. Yeah. Right? We're still in the same house, you know, yeah. but it's like, that's what I, I was like. You know what? From if I if I was you know I played basketball when I was a kid and, and and a teenager, if I was playing an apologetics pickup game, you know of of any single person, like hey, we're about to tackle these Muslims. You know, James White would be one of the first people that I would pick, hands down. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I got yeah. first pick, and I would see and I would see kind of survey, you know, who's is that? Yes, absolutely. James White. Come on. You know, I would, I would, he would be like first pick when it comes to pickup games, uh, when it comes to Muslims, uh, when it comes to, uh, Mormonism, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, um, uh, you know, just, just th- those are really two, two really Jehovah's Witnesses. He's strong in those two areas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I you know, Jeff Durbin, Another one that I would pick up in the pickup game, you know, if I had, you know, if I had a second or third pick and, and Durbin one picked up. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff Durbin. Those are two very staunch reformed, 
you know, Calvinist, you know, that, but when it comes to a pickup game inwardly, <laughs> there's no way what a, you know, <laughs> late flowers. Yes. Late flowers. <laughs> hey, is that Braxton Hunter over there? Like, give me him. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. And that's, and that's how I feel about this. Just in a nutshell, this is how I feel about this. It's, 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 yeah, I agree. When, when I go back and listen yeah. to old episodes of Trinity radio, our podcast, it's amazing to me how often I brag on James White because as an apologist, he's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this issue, it's just com- it's just completely different. Hey, before we go, I, I would tell you um, that uh, uh, one thing that's funny about me and Leighton and the way that um, we connected was I had debated two Calvinists and uh, Leighton was preparing for his debate with James White, if I understand the story correctly. And he was looking for Southern Baptists because he's the head of a Baptist entity. He's looking for other Baptists debating Calvinism. And he said, you're pretty like pretty well all I can find. And so he said, I listened to, to you debate these two guys. Mm-hmm. So when we finally met, uh, I was standing next to one of the Calvinists that I debated, Paul Cooper. And he was like, man, you crushed those two Calvinists. And I was like, well, here's one of them right here. <laughs> and uh, it's okay because Paul Cooper is now not a Calvinist anymore. And uh, he, he's, he's uh, seen the light, I guess. Oh, but, yeah, um, I, I followed I followed his journey. Just kind of oh, I, yeah. I listened yeah. to one of his sermons, like really staunch Calvinism. Right. And I followed the journey, his journey out of it. You know? So so Leighton and I developed God a determined friendship. That, by the way. God determined That's that. right. He determined all of it. But, um, <laughs> we, but, but Leighton and I developed a friendship out of that. And now Leighton works for our school is one of our professors at trinity nice. teaches soteriology yeah, that's awesome that's awesome well let the listeners know where they can find you i think this is a we, we made a two uh two minute and two and a half minute video stretch into an hour and 20 minutes that just how right. much we love talking about soteriology so yeah and get along so well we have a good chemistry i think we need I, to have I, you on our show sometime i would love that i would absolutely yeah. love that so sounds good so let the listeners know where to find you uh yeah I, check me out most importantly uh at uh, youtube.com slash braxton hunter youtube.com I can use the <clears throat> I can use the subscribers just like anyone can. YouTube.com slash Braxton Hunter. And then uh, if you're interested in taking courses, uh, listen, we've got a lot of people who don't have any intention of becoming professional ministers who uh, take courses. You, they're all video courses. You can take them at home and earn your degree. So uh, you can contact us at trinitysem.edu. If you think that's even maybe something you might be interested in, just go over there to trinitysem.edu. And on the right-hand side of the page, there's a form there that you can fill out. And just just give us some simple information. It'll take you less than two minutes. And uh, then we'll send you some stuff. And I, I think um, I think that could be helpful to you. But listen, I've really enjoyed this, Chris. It's been a blast. And I thank you so much for having me on, brother. Uh, I, this is... Uh... Everything I imagine and more. So I appreciate you, man. <laughs> I wish my wife would say that. <laughs> oh, that's the third one of the night. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, man. Thanks a lot.